So our guests this morning are Ben and Jono Isaac, co-directors of Isaac Property, one of Australia's leading developers of convenience retail with a family background within the sector dating back some 40 years. As one of the most experienced retail development businesses in the nation, Isaac Property has over 40 sites either in planning or in development at any one time, with recent projects throughout New South Wales, including fast food, childcare and hospitality assets. Prior to the launch of their own business, Ben and Jono learned from and worked in their father, Tony Isaac's business, himself a veteran of the property industry, having worked intimately with both the Coles Group and Woolworths Property throughout the 80s and 90s to develop over 100 shopping centres, including pioneering the latter's marketplace concept. Outside of their property interests, Ben and Jono formed a consortium in 2019 and acquired Sydney's acclaimed Boathouse Group a highly regarded hospitality and accommodation business with popular offerings in Palm Beach, Whale Beach, Shelley Beach and Rose Bay. The pair also hold a number of external investment interests within the childcare and automotive sectors. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Ben, let's start with you. Approaching 10 weeks now of lockdown across Sydney, take me through your assessment on the impact, both on the development side of your business, but also on the commercial property market more broadly. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, the development side of the business, uh, to be honest, we haven't been busier before. It's it's um, convenience retail, which is how we kind of describe the niche like subsector that we're in, which is primarily service stations, fast food, childcare, car washes, those kind of things. It's kind of shown itself to be pandemic proof. And so we've never had stronger demand. Things like service stations, you know, most people would look at a service station and think of the fuel, but they're also mini supermarkets. So your daily needs, they've taken up the slack from supermarkets, which have been overrun at times with panic buying, things like milk, bread and toilet paper even. So they've continued to trade really well. Fast food, they've pioneered that drive-through concept. And so at no point during the whole pandemic have we seen them close their doors. So they've been able to operate by having the customers come through the drive-through. And, uh, you know, they've also added things like Uber Eats. So we had our tenants, you know, reporting 50 to 100% increases in turnover when lockdowns first hit. So they're, they're going well. Childcare, you know, they've remained open throughout as well. It was meant to be for essential workers, but I think a lot of other people are, are sending their kids in anyway but um you know we've had it at a break-even point when it was free childcare was was being offered with the first lockdown and then um we've kind of got settled into a normal trading pattern now so i guess the end result of all of that is that you know the tenants that we've had have remained open and they've shifted their focus from shopping centers and drive-up stores to roadside drive-through and the demand from these tenants for new stores has, has never been stronger for us. So that means we need to find more sites to do more developments. And, and that's always part of the challenge. And then I guess in commercial property more generally, um, it's obviously a very broad sector. So things like if you're in office, you're going to be traveling very differently to industrial. You know, pure retail in shopping centers is different to convenience retail. And then even retail between different shopping centers varies, like a neighborhood shopping center is traveling well, whereas, you know, you might have some, because they're anchored by primarily like a supermarket and essential needs compared to something like a 
larger sub-regional or regional shopping centre, which has a lot of discretionary retail, like clothing and the like. So, yeah, I think um, it's a real mixed bag. For, but for us, we've never been busier and our tenants are, are all going strong, which is great. And Jono, like all hospitality and accommodation providers, this period has no doubt been particularly challenging for the Boathouse Group. How have you and the team positioned the business to weather the ongoing closures and uncertainty that exist? I think that's been across the board throughout Australia. Everyone within the hospitality and, and accommodation industry have really felt the brunt of COVID. The environment that it's brought with it and restrictions um, have presented a lot of challenges. So we've had to look at different ways where we can pivot the business and keep servicing the local communities that we're in as much as possible. We've done this with you know, various uh, takeaway options as well as catering packages and alike. Obviously, you know, we've got 10 venues across from the central coast at Petonga um, all the way to Rose Bay. So we've just looked at whatever we can do with the restrictions. Obviously, it's different in different states, but at the moment, we've got down to literally two venues that we're able to offer takeaway from. And then doing a couple of offerings such as like Father's Day catering packages that are delivered. But um, yeah, obviously it presents a lot of challenges um, in the current environment. Given the strength of essential needs retail, which has been accelerated particularly recently as a result of the pandemic, Ben, talk to me about why the business has been heavily concentrated towards this sector for so long and the investment fundamentals of the asset class that appealed to the business. In your intro, you mentioned John and I worked for our father who developed shopping centres. So that was our background for 10 to 15 years. But um, post-GFC, we really struggled and dad decided to retire. So there wasn't any demand for new shopping centres. And we we personally, John and I, couldn't generate any work. So we started our own business. and But we of course, we had no capital and there was no demand for shopping centres, which is what we were used to and what our experience was. So we knew we had to try something different at that point. And uh, I received a call about whether we were interested in developing a service station. And we kind of had to work on a, we had no idea how to do a service station, but you know, fake it till you make it. So we took the opportunity with both hands and it wasn't any kind of grand scheme of strategy that we were gonna go into convenience retail. It was, it was literally just an opportunity that we, that we had. And then after we developed our first one, we found that the development process was a lot quicker and we were dealing with one tenant and just really great people in that in the industry. So we decided to put the blinkers on and, and only develop service stations. So the first 10 projects we did were 7-Eleven service stations. And then we kind of naturally expanded from there. Um, we were approached by fast food operators and other fuel operators outside of 7-Eleven who liked the way that we, we did things and that we were transparent and honest and we just kind of broadened our base from there into the convenience retail sector. So, but they've always been a focus on convenience retail, whatever you so childcare, car wash, service station, fast food. And then, you know, having those blinkers on means we haven't been distracted by getting into like a residential development or going back into supermarkets or anything like that. We've just carved a niche out for ourselves and we stick to that and that keeps us focused and on track with what we do. 
And Jono, in terms of the business model, are these assets developed by Isaac Property on behalf of private investors who then seek, say, an immediate sale, or do you develop these assets and hold them on your own books for the long term? In Isaac Property, we've definitely evolved as we've grown. When we started, we used to develop and sell and develop and sell and reinvest those profits into the next deal just to keep it rolling, uh, which enabled us to kind of increase the size of the developments that we were doing. We always had a handful of joint venture partners along the way, which definitely assisted with that. But now uh, we mostly try and hold our developments on completion, which creates a portfolio of mainly national retailers, which are all on long-term leases. It just makes sense to sit on the passive income, which gives us a secure cash flow. Ben, I read with interest a recent article in the AFR where you mentioned the market is extremely hot. The appetite from retailers for new sites has never been higher. Walk me through the types of retailers and others that are most active in the market and then how does this compare with, say, five or ten years ago? So the main retailers, that, from a fuel perspective, we predominantly deal with the likes of BP, 7-Eleven, Caltex and Viva, Viva is Shell. So these guys always kind of go through ebbs and flows on demand for new stores. So we also deal with the independent fuel retailers. So they would brand themselves as BP Shell or Caltex and that kind of fills the gaps for us. From a fast food perspective, there's a lot more entrant, new entrants into the market. So, you know, five, 10 years ago, it would have just been McDonald's, KFC, Hungry Jack's, Red Rooster, those kind of brands that everyone knows and obviously still around. However, now we deal with a lot of the new guys like Guzman and Gomez, Taco Bell, Starbucks, Aporto, Carl's Jr., El Jana, Frango's, the, the list goes on. So there's plenty of new players entering the market. We're about to see the first five guys open in Australia in Penrith. Um, which are huge over in the east coast of the US. So lots of new players in fast food. Outside of fuel and food, you've got childcare. So that's very, very strong demand from operators out there, although we only just kind of develop for our own brand. And then um, we've also started our own swim school business, which we're rolling out for new centres. And then car washes, which again, we've got our own business. We just develop for ourselves, but we get a lot of inquiry out there in the market. So I think with the influx of lots of more operators, it's continued to drive demand as they all compete for pad sites. And there's only a limited number of development sites out there. I'm interested to know your strategy behind site acquisition. What are the fundamentals you consider and analyse prior to purchase? And I guess the second part of that is, have you seen the ability to actually find suitable sites become more difficult and challenging, given that everybody wants to be in retail development or retail property at the moment? First of all, we only look at zone sites. The rezoning process in New South Wales just takes far too long and it's too risky. And so it has to be zoned first and foremost, ideally anywhere from 2,000 to 20,000 square metres. Our main focus these days is, is on the larger sites so we can create a convenience retail hub. So we can put, you know, fuel, fast food, childcare, gyms, car washes, tyre centres, everything on the one lot and everything kind of rolls off each other. Plus the bigger you go, generally speaking, the lower the rate per square meter and then it's you know main road exposure sites and high growth areas so our main focus has always been from the northwest of sydney down through western sydney and to the southwest all that big growth area new suburbs that we're putting in and then finally the access is is the other big thing so from our point of view you know it's not convenient retail 
if you can't get in and out easily. So like access is, is a big thing. And the challenge for us is always with RMS who want to restrict access off main roads. We obviously want to get it to get in and out for our tenants. So we've been navigating through that and that's gotten harder every year. But yes, it's definitely been more difficult finding good sites at the right price in this current market, which is pretty hot. And, you know, there's a lot of cash around. There's more cash than there are opportunities, that's for sure. So we pick up stuff a lot off market or we generally get stuff before it goes to market or or in the EOI process, not necessarily through auctions um, where we can get some due diligence time and, and that. But yeah, look, that's that's my job in our business is to go find sites. And that's what I spend the majority of my time doing for every 20 sites I look at, maybe or 30 or 40 sites I look at, there's only one that you kind of grabs our attention and that we pursue. So a lot of looking at sites and, and yeah, it is hard work finding it. It's, it's it, I think it's the most difficult part of our game is to find the site and get it at the right price um, to make sure the rest of the development stacks up. And then presumably once you have found a suitable site, the next challenging part would be actually working out what type of retail offering will best suit it, be it fast food, childcare, convenience. How do you go about that process? You've got a site, but then how do you go about finding out what's going to work on it? Yeah, so the tenants, we've got very close relationships with the tenants where they're constantly letting us know where they want to go. So we've got a pretty good idea and we can target areas knowing full well that that they're keen. But otherwise, if if I look at a site that um, comes across my desk, I'll do a, a gap analysis to see, you know, it might be 7-Eleven, Shell and Caltex are there, but there's no BP. So we'll approach BP and suggest that this is a market that they're not in and it would work well. And then the same thing for the fast food. And the, the key is to get, you know, one or two anchors in there and then we can start to roll in either some of our other brands or some of the other kind of tier two or tier three brands um, to help stack the feasibility. But yeah, it's, it's ultimately just looking at who's there in the market and who isn't. Given our main focus is in these new growth centres out in like northwest, west and southwest Sydney, generally they're not, no one's there because it's a new suburb. Uh, you know, they might be building 10,000 houses. So that's always the best outcome for us because we can go and approach all the tenants and, um, and no one's there. So there's no cannibalisation of existing stores or anything like that. From a geographical perspective, Jono, the majority of existing sites under development or in consideration are between, say, a 400-kilometre radius, I think stretching from Newcastle in the north down to Nowra in the south. In which regions are you seeing the greatest opportunities for growth across New South Wales at the moment? Like all of our projects are focused um, in New South Wales at this stage. We do often get asked to move into different uh, geographical areas in Queensland and Victoria, but our current and future pipeline is all focused kind of in Greater Sydney and the surrounding regions. I think, as Ben mentioned before, just that real growth areas of Northwest Sydney and Southwest Sydney with the new airport going in just presents a lot of opportunities. So that's where we're focused. As a result of the immediate term impacts of COVID, there's been a significant migration pattern away from traditional city centres toward regional centres. Ben, talk to me about how you've seen this shift and as a result, are you seeing yield compression as a result of the increased competition? 
Yeah, so um, obviously with this pandemic, everyone's looking at spending a lot more time at home and, and everyone's kind of adopted this working online as, as an acceptable method of, of working and not needing to go into the office. So there's definitely been this tree change or sea change and a lot of growth in regional centres. So, you know, we've always developed into regional centres, you know, which can have 50,000 people or more, you know, with the projects in Bathurst and Orange and Lithgow and heading west and, and up and down the coast. So there's always been really strong demand. And in fact, you know, some of these stores that we've developed in these areas trade stronger than ones in Sydney. I actually, I saw in your email this morning for all the properties that are for sale, there's the 7-Eleven in Kelso in Bathurst um, <laughs> that we, we developed. There's real compression across the board and, and I don't think the regional centres have missed out on that. They've obviously always been a, a, a court like 25, 50 basis points, maybe softer than Sydney assets. But I think we sold that asset for 6.25% after we developed it. It's probably going to land somewhere near 5%, I would have thought now. So that's a fair bit of yield compression. There's been rental increases over that. But it's a it's a 7-Eleven national retailer. It's got a 15-year lease and that's and it trades really well, you know, better than some Sydney stores. So there's always going to be yield compression, whether you're regional or Sydney, um, over the last kind of five to eight years we've seen. And I don't think that's going to change just because of the availability of stock. So investors are always going to be searching out for that, you know, 7-Eleven anchored tenant or national retailer anchored tenant. And um, if they can't get it in Sydney, they'll go to regional locations. You know, we just sold some stuff down in Bombardieri and we got yields in the 4%. So yeah, it's, and that's, you know, two and a half hours south of Sydney, but national retailers. So yeah, there's, there's yield compression across the board, but regional centres haven't missed out on that. Jono, given the substantial increase in interest for convenience retail assets right across the board, are you seeing a corresponding increase in the level of investor interest in your business? Yeah, absolutely. The convenience retail sector presents a really strong and reliable investment, which is mainly focused around those national tenants who, as Ben mentioned, are performing really well in the current environment. There's also generally, they're made up of independent pad sites and drive-through boxes. So you don't really have those smaller mum and dad operators that you can often see in the larger shopping centre developments to infill the smaller tenancies. This definitely makes it more attractive for investors. And we do get approached quite a lot, both by private investors and by funds. Outside of retail property, Ben, do you anticipate the business will diversify into any other sectors? And if so, which sectors do you see may have some sort of appeal on the horizon? I think if we went into any more businesses, my wife would probably kill me. <laughs> but uh, the from our point of view, our main focus when we have expanded into other businesses like childcare, car washes, and, and most recently swim schools, it's all under the same convenience retail banner. So it's it's to do with our current development portfolio. We can go into our own sites and underpin the property value that we're creating by signing on as a tenant as well. So it's not like a scattergun approach where this is a good business and it's a completely random type of use it has to be linked back to what we're doing in the development field in saying all of that you know we've obviously got into the boathouse group which is hospitality which isn't as much as a development play although we do have some development project for a boathouse in the works hopefully coming out next year but that that was 
something we'd probably more describe as a lifestyle investment where it's, you know, we can go to our own restaurants and cafes and bars and pubs and, and have some fun. And, and it's always good to do business in those kind of venues as well. But uh, yeah, I definitely don't think we're starting any new businesses anytime soon. I think we'll just focus on expanding the existing uh, businesses that we have to roll out more childcare, more car washes, more swim centres and more hospitality venues. And before we move on, Ben, are there any other major trends or patterns you're seeing in the commercial property sector, either generally or that are affecting your particular subsector of the market? Yeah, so I think more generally, industrial is probably the hottest sector at the moment as there's, you know, everything's moving online and it's underpinned by logistics. So we're seeing huge demand for that and, and that impacts us in the sense that I'm out there trying to buy commercially zoned sites for convenience retail, but I've, I've found more and more I'm up against buyers who are looking at it from an industrial point of view and where they would have paid a lot less a square metre, they're now on par um, paying the same kind of rates per square metre as, as, as we are. And then in the retail space, you know, neighbourhood centres uh, are trading extremely strongly uh, in, in terms of sales um, and probably leaving the sub-regional and regional kind of sub-sectors behind as, as investors see risk with the kind of discretionary retailers in there and the, the discount department stores and whatnot. So, yeah, I think they're the kind of two main trends. Office space, I don't know office that well, but... I think that there is an opportunity for some suburban hubs in office space, which we've looked to incorporate in one or two of our developments where we might build like a two or three story little office block, which allows people who don't need to go into the CBD anymore to, to work closer to home. I think that will be a bit of a trend and a bit more flexibility around that, that office environment. But yeah, they're the kind of trends that, that we're seeing across the board uh, more generally. And I guess the impact, the main impact on us, on our little subsector is is just that competition that we're now getting from industrial users in competing for sites. Let's close out our discussion with your interests outside of property. Ben, I'll start with you and, and then go to Jono. As I mentioned in the opening, you're the co-owners of the well-renowned and it's basically an institution across Sydney, the Boathouse Group. Take me through how you both came to be involved within that business. It was certainly not planned. I got a call from our accountant who had the opportunity. They, they were working on the business uh, for several months prior, trying to help them because they were in a bit of financial difficulty. They had an investor ready to go, uh, which fell over last minute. So my brother and I were called in on that day and asked if we would uh, we would come on board and acquire that business. So it was uh, it was that morning when you when I woke up. It was at seven a.m. or when I got to work. I was, certainly wasn't thinking we were going to be in hospitality by 5 p.m. that afternoon, but here we are, and it's been a bit of a, a wild ride since. We've been in it for two years now, and in that two years, we've had multiple lockdowns and COVID and whatever else, so certainly more challenges than what we anticipated, but there's been windows in there where it, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been really interesting learning a new business, and as you say, it's been an institution, so the revenue's always been great, and we've been able to expand that we opened down our latest restaurant in rose bay during a bit of a gap in the um in the pandemic so with lockdowns and, and that was actually became our number one venue in terms of trading uh before we had to close it all down but our main focus here is to continue with 
expanding the Boathouse Group under that brand that everyone knows and loves. So we're very selective in where we go. It needs to be a real A-grade location. And typically that's, you know, sitting right on the beachfront or over the water in a kind of marina or something like that. So yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun and I think it will be, we're, we're in it for the long haul and we'll just continue to grow it. And you know you're on a good thing when you've got one of the newest and biggest investment banks in Sydney naming their business Bower and Joey after Bower and Joey Road. <laughs> oh, yes. I didn't see that. Good. Hopefully they have lots of lunches at our restaurant or something. <laughs> Jono uh, and I, we, we've had to call it the boathouse belly because we've constantly <laughs> now having meetings at our own restaurants and uh, it's, it's not too good for the waistline. <laughs> Jono, what were some of the, Ben touched on it there, but what were some of the initial challenges the business faced, say, two or three years ago and how did you go about working through those issues? Look, I guess it's never easy stepping into a business that's uh, been created over, you know, a 10-year period and was a real kind of love project, I think, uh, by the original owners. But we just looked at, you know, any of the systems and procedures that we could improve on. Obviously, you know, I think the benefit that we could add uh, was quite financially, you know, bringing some strength into that. And then also just on growth, just being able to uh, grow the business and give, you know, some opportunities that probably wouldn't be there without kind of our property expertise that we can bring into it. But um, yeah, like every business, hospitality definitely has its challenges. The business today comprises some 10 venues throughout Sydney, as you mentioned earlier, with a diverse offering, including cafes, restaurants, hotel accommodation, a deli, a bakery and a homeware stores. Ben, take me through the growth of the business over the past two or so years and the response from the local community as well as customers. We, as I mentioned before, we opened Rose Bay. That was a new market going to the eastern suburbs because we've typically been the northern beaches and then Patonga over in the central coast. We like were embraced by the east. I think they knew the brand so well because a lot of people have houses up in Palm Beach and 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 those kind of areas. So they knew the brand from the day we opened, we've had lines out the doors, we've been fully booked. Um, we've still continued to operate the little hole in the wall kiosk doing, you know, coffee, fresh bread, flowers, that kind of stuff. And that that's really busy. It's it picks up all the people walking along along the main road there doing their morning walk. So um, yeah, look, we've really been embraced by the eastern suburbs. We'd love to just keep expanding the brand beyond those ten venues. And we've got something in the works uh, in Sydney's northwest into a nursery concept that we're just in a council for, which we're really excited about. And then we've we've hopefully got a few more venues that things that we're looking at that we can um, reveal and and as Sydney kind of reopens and New South Wales reopens that we can bring to the market and uh, people will be hopefully desperate or as desperate as we are to get back out there and have a good time and have a drink and a meal and catch up with friends. So I think next year, once we get through these vaccine hurdles and hopefully the government, you know, stays true to what they're saying and really winds back restrictions, we should see a, a real bumper year next year with people heading out and, and having a good time. And John, I know I'm looking forward to spending my summer there in Palm Beach. Take me through the next few months of the business in terms of when you think it's likely that you'll be able to reopen. Well, I guess 80% fully vaxxed seems to be the next milestone that everyone's talking about. So um, I think the government's talking about that being, you know, mid-October 
at this stage. And yeah, as Ben mentioned, hopefully the government, you know, holds up their side and really winds those restrictions back, uh, which should hopefully mean that we can have a semi-normal Christmas or like a big Christmas and have a few drinks and you know work parties and stuff that we missed out on last year but yeah so for the hospitality side of things we're really looking forward to kind of that November period and December but um, yeah I think it'll be a transition John I just like the 70% hurdle there might be some restrictions where it's only outdoor seating which is a lot of our venues and then the 80% hurdle where we're going to get the restrictions wound back even more, but they still may have things like one per four square meters and, and other restrictions imposed, you know, waiters to wear face masks and all that kind of stuff. But I agree with John, certainly October would be the target where we'd be hoping that the first round of restrictions are kind of wound back. Yeah. But it's you never know. There's the talk about the red another strain in South Africa and whatever else so who knows? never stops <laughs> who knows? Never all we can stops. do is be ready to go when we can well gentlemen pleasure speaking with you both this morning appreciate the opportunity to share your insights and look forward to spending as I mentioned many a uh, many an afternoon there in any one of the 10 venues that you've got fantastic institution well liked by all and look forward to watching your business grow into the years ahead thanks again for your time thanks so much for having us and uh, looking forward to having a couple of beers at one of the venues when you get up here.